Well, today we're going to wrap up our study of 1 Thessalonians, and then next week we'll move on into 2 Thessalonians. And we've spent the last several weeks talking about eschatology, which is a great word to use to impress your friends at parties. Uh, It's what the Bible says about the end times, but today Paul is going to shift gears back to some practical teaching on how to actually walk out the Christian faith, how to follow Jesus in your daily life and how we can do that together collectively as the church. You might recall that back in chapter four in verses one and two, which seems like an eternity ago because we spent that long talking about the rapture, but in verses one and two of chapter four, Paul said this to the Thessalonian believers. He said, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Here's the paraphrase. Paul says, I want you guys to keep growing in the faith. I want you to increasingly live lives that please God, and you can do that by following those commandments that we gave you from the Lord when we were with you in Thessalonica. You see, Paul and Silas had had shared these instructions. They refer to them as commandments to help them live out and walk out their faith. They wanted to follow the Lord, but they needed some help knowing what does that look like in, in our lives? And this is for them as individuals and for them together as the church. And if they followed these commandments, it would cause their church to grow in strength and maturity and in health. And so now here in chapter five, we're gonna start in verse 12. Paul's going to remind them of some of these commandments, and he does that as well, so that we would have the benefit of reading them all these thousands of years later. I mean, Paul didn't know that, but the Lord did. So Paul begins by telling them to take care of their pastors. That's the first thing he's gonna do, and you might think, well, well, why does he do that? And it's because if you're a pastor, this isn't really an issue you can raise on your own. You know, church, I was just out walking and praying this week, and the Lord put a message on my heart about how you need to take care of your pastors. You can't really do that, that's, that's, that's really hard to do. And I can tell you from personal experience, anytime the subject comes up, my own insecurities kick in and start telling me stuff like, Jeff, everybody is out there and they're thinking, oh, you know Jeff is gonna go in depth on this one. It's probably gonna turn into a seven week study on how to take care of pastors. But the blessing I have is that we go through the Bible expositionally. We work through it verse by verse. So at least if anyone asks me, why were you going on about that? I can say, well, I didn't. God's word did, and it was the next thing in the next chapter that we were scheduled to study. And while these Thessalonian believers loved the Lord, Paul felt they needed to be reminded to take care of their pastors because they were men who loved the Lord and had given their lives to serve his church. And that's what they were doing, even if it meant them working crazy hours for for low pay. And Paul felt the need to say to the Thessalonians, hey guys, I know you love your church. I know you love your pastors, but make sure they're taken care of. Make sure their practical needs are met. Make sure that they're not serving the church at the expense of their marriage and at the expense of their families. Make sure that the church isn't thriving, but your pastor's families are falling apart. Make sure they're healthy. So he says in verse 12, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Admonish just means to warn or to correct with gentleness. It means to encourage as well. And the Greek word used there for labor is actually an agricultural term. It means to labor like a farmer. And the parallel there is that in ministry and working on a farm, 
the work is never done. No matter what, whenever you go to bed at night, there's work that you walked away from that still needed to be done. There's always more to do. And so that's always true in the life of a farmer. It's always true in the life of a pastor as well. The day ends and there's always someone you're thinking about that you're like, oh, I should have connected with this person. I should have encouraged this person. I should have checked how this person was doing. I should have prayed more. I should have been in the word more. Should have, should have, should have. Verse 13, he goes on and it says, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. I just want to make sure that nobody missed that. It said, to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And I think we're just going to sit there for a minute, meditate on that, and let the word of God dwell in us richly. But let me say this. In our culture today, when a pastor shows up in a movie or on a TV show, there's a 99.99% chance the character will be corrupt, a bigot, or an idiot, or some mixture of possibly all three. Even in the church, there's not a lot of people anymore who grow up aspiring to be pastors. You know, like, like when I was in kids' camps and youth camps, you'd say, how many of you feel called to ministry? And like half the people would put their hands up. You do it now. And they're like, no, nah, not really. Not really a thing. And I shared with you a few weeks ago that the majority of pastors will quit working in the church at some point in their careers. And for most of them, the reason won't be sin or, or low pay. The reason will be that they feel like they're not making a difference. They'll feel like it doesn't matter whether they continue or not. And in a lot of churches over the past 75 years, especially the last 75 years, congregations have been opposed to their pastors even making a livable wage. They'd say things like, well, well, listen, we can't pay the pastor well because we got to keep him humble. Because with all the glory that's in the ministry, I mean, if you combine that with a livable wage, they'd, they'd just be out of control. Or they say, you know, money's a corrupting influence. So let's not just give them any. Let's just solve it that way. Or, you know, you know pastors are called to a life of poverty, which, which is not biblical at all. There's no verse that says that in any way, shape, or form where pastors should be willing to do that if the Lord calls them to that, but it's not something that's supposed to be inflicted on somebody, you know, hey, we're just helping you with the Lord's calling by inflicting poverty upon you. And to illustrate this, I'll never forget the story. A pastor I worked for one time told me about a church he was working at in the 90s. And he wasn't the senior pastor there, somebody else was. He was on staff. And the senior pastor at that church needed a, a car. His car had died and he needed to replace it. So he went and bought a 1980s diesel Mercedes Benz. And if you know anything about cars, you know the thing about these 80s diesel Mercs is they had an engine that like just went forever. Not a sexy car at all because they didn't accelerate very fast. They put out a lot of smoke a lot of the time. And so we picked up this 80s Mercedes diesel for $4,000 and he drove it to church. And the church was outraged that the pastor was driving a Mercedes. Literally that Sunday, the whole church almost split. They had to have an, an emergency board meeting because they said, this is just not right. The, the perception of a pastor driving a Mercedes. And, and the way the story ends is, is, is hilarious, tragic, and, and bizarre. So the church board said, said, listen, the church is about to split. You cannot show up in a Mercedes of any kind ever again. They took $30,000 of the church's money and bought the pastor a brand new Ford Explorer and the congregation was okay with that. But they didn't want him seen in a Mercedes. The issue was like, was like the brand. You just, you just can't be in a Mercedes, it's not right. Jesus never drove a Mercedes so neither should you. And, and 
And people think, man, that, that, that's crazy. But I, I still have friends who are pastors who have to be careful about what pictures they post on, on social media when they go on vacation because there are still believers, still people in their churches who would say, man, it looks like they're having fun on that vacation. How much are we paying this guy? What's, what's going on here? And, and in many churches, those same people would have no problem with their plumber making a six-figure salary. They'll be like, yeah, well, well, absolutely. I mean, that plumber does something for me that benefits me every single day of my life. But when it comes to their pastor, they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know. That seems a little out of line. And, and in many churches, the, the pastor is valued literally less than the plumber. And I'm not putting down plumbers. I hope you understand that's my point. If you're listening to this online, don't send me an email if you're a plumber. Jesus loves plumbers too. That's not where I'm going with this. So all of this, all of this is why Paul says, he says to them, listen, Thessalonian believers, take care of your pastors. He says, just because they're willing to work for next to nothing doesn't mean you should make them work for next to nothing. Just because they're willing to work crazy hours for the church doesn't mean you should. Just because they're willing to lay down their lives for the church doesn't mean you should abuse that commitment. And at the risk of sounding self-serving, I'll say this. Wherever you go to church in your lifetime, wherever you go, take care of your pastors. Pray for them. And I'm going to tell you very honestly why. And you can accuse me of being self-serving, but nobody else is going to tell you this because nobody else knows because they're not a pastor. So, so I'll just tell you, uh, here's why. Because I know that everybody works hard. I know that everybody has stress. But when you're working in the church as a pastor for your job, you find yourself fatigued mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically almost all the time. It's a unique type of exhaustion that, that pastors face, and, and you've maybe come close to it if, if, you, if you're working a job that's physically tiring and mentally tiring, and at the same time, there's some sort of situation going on in your life that's draining you spiritually and emotionally at the same time. If you've been through that season, you'll remember it because it would have been vivid. Most pastors are facing that on an ongoing basis all the time. And that, that's why pastors quit the ministry. They think, I'm not making a difference. And they think, man, it would be so good to do a job where I just work nine to five and I come home and I'm only physically and mentally exhausted. I'm not emotionally exhausted because I'm like, I'm done my job and I'm not going to think about it the rest of the evening. I'm not going to think about, oh man, I, I better really you know, pray for these delivery routes that I'm going to be doing tomorrow. You're not going to think about it again. And a lot of pastors think like, that sounds amazing. I would love to go like just dig holes or drive a car or just do anything where I'm just drained physically and mentally. That would be amazing. And so wherever you go to church in your lifetime, let me just encourage you, pray for your pastors. Love your pastors. And that's why Paul tells them this because the pastors in Thessalonica wouldn't have been complaining. They would have been just faithfully serving the Lord. But Paul, as an insider, as a minister, says, guys, take care of your pastors. There's stuff they go through that you have no idea about. Trust me as the Apostle Paul. Take care of them. And then he says, be at peace among yourselves. And this cracks me up a little bit because right after Paul has said, take care of your pastors, he says, be at peace among yourselves. And at least when I read it, what I read into that is him saying, and by the way, one of the best ways you can bless your pastors is just keeping the drama in your church to a minimum. Be at peace among yourselves. That's a great way to bless your pastor. It's sort of like if my kids ask me, you know, how, how can we bless you and mom? You know, I'd never say it, but what I'd really want to say is, 
could you just give us like 24 hours where you don't get into any kind of fight or argument among yourselves? Like that would be pretty great. That would just be amazing. And so after speaking about blessing and valuing their pastors, Paul says, Thessalonian church members, here's one way you can bless your pastors. Just be at peace. Be at peace among yourselves. You guys are great at that, by the way. But he says this to all believers, be at peace among yourselves. Then in verse 14, he says, now we exhort you, brethren. That means we encourage you, we, we command you, we challenge you. And then underline all of this here. Warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. And that is phenomenally good advice and instruction. So we'll unpack each of them and then we'll talk a little bit about how they all work together. First he says, warn those who are unruly. And in the original Greek, the language there is is military type jargon. The idea is somebody in the military who's neglecting their duties as a soldier or falling out of formation when he says they're being unruly. In the original Greek as well, the, the meaning of the word warn is to caution or reprove gently, gently. So it's letting them know, hey listen, where you're headed, where you're going in this direction of your life is not what God wants for you and because I love you, I've gotta warn you, it's not gonna lead to good things. The very word unruly, please get this, this is huge. The very word unruly implies that there is a rule that there is a standard that believers are expected to live up to. I know that sounds incredibly simple, but I'm continually astounded by the number of believers who don't seem to realize this. That if he says, warn the unruly, the implication is there's a rule. There's a standard. There are expectations that you're supposed to be living up to. Most Christians don't realize that Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, if you wanna follow Jesus, according to Jesus, you have to deny yourself, which at its most basic means you have to live for Jesus ahead of yourself. That means what he wants for you becomes more important than what you want for yourself. It means that if there's a clash between what God wants for you and what you want for yourself, you deny yourself and pursue what God wants for you. That's the standard that Paul is talking about. And it's not that any of us can do it perfectly, but it's that when you're a believer, you say, I wanna follow Jesus, and I know that that means I'm gonna do my best moment to moment, day to day, to deny myself and live for him. It also means that if you're a Christian, you're committed to saying, if somebody points out to me that I'm going off track and they're right, I actually wanna know because I want to be on track. I wanna be laying my life down for the Lord. I'm gonna do everything I can to adjust my course and get back on track. But instead, what we see a lot in modern Christianity is, excuse me, uh, who do you think you are to tell me how to live? Who are you to judge me? But Paul says, Warn those who are unruly. Paul says, have the difficult conversation with somebody. Have the difficult conversation. And and please get this. Basic logic dictates that in order to warn those who are unruly, one would have to actually judge what they're doing as being unruly. So get this. If you're unwilling to ever judge anybody's behavior, you cannot follow this command from Paul. You can't do it. If you're like, I'm just never gonna judge anyone about anything, 
ever. You cannot obey the instruction that Paul is giving believers from the Lord. Being a believer means being part of the church, and the church, as we've talked about, is the bride of Jesus. So we're to be concerned with how our behavior affects the reputation of Jesus. We're supposed to be concerned with the church being the most beautiful bride we can be for Jesus. And so if you're not into that, if you don't want anyone to ever tell you if you're going off track, if you don't want anyone letting you know if you're doing something that's not pleasing to the Lord, you should not become a Christian. You shouldn't become a Christian. If you're not into denying yourself, Jesus would say, then you can't be a Christian. If you're not willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, if you hear the gospel and you're like, man, I can't believe this Jesus guy died for me and saved me from death and put a place in heaven for me, but then when it comes to him saying, okay, now to receive salvation, you, you gotta deny yourself and decide that's the new standard for your life, and you're like, I'm not into that. Jesus would say, you can't be a Christian. The situation there is, is like the rich young ruler that Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna do that. And he walks away. He doesn't get saved. Because if you're not into denying yourself and following Jesus, if you're not even up for trying to live that way, you can't be a Christian because that's what it's all about. And I'm not saying you have to do it perfectly. Again, please get that. You can't do it perfectly. I can't do it. What I'm saying, what Paul is saying is that when you're a Christian, your priorities have changed there's a new standard, there's a new deal where you received the life of Jesus but in return you gave him your life. And so there's agreement between you and God that what he wants for you is more important than what you want for yourself. That's the deal. Not that any of us does it perfectly but we agree this is how I'm trying to live my life. The blessing is that in living that way you begin to realize that what God wants for you is so much better than what you actually want for yourself anyway. The things that you and I want, what our desires are, generally come from a place of such limited knowledge. We can't see the future. We don't know the deep emotions and psychological issues and motivations within ourselves that are affecting us. I've been talking about this quite, quite a lot recently with people. We, we have stuff in our subconscious that we don't even know is there that affects the things we want and how we behave. God knows all of that. And he has a plan for us that is good and is tailor-made for us for our good. What he wants for you and I is so much better than what we want for ourselves. And as you begin to pursue what God wants ahead of what you want, you begin to find that what he wants for you is actually the way to peace, the way to joy, the way to fulfillment and meaning. And then Paul says that we're to comfort the faint-hearted. So to the person who's discouraged, to the person who's in despair, losing hope, losing faith, we're called to provide comfort. And I would suggest to you that that means things like, like listening to them, asking how they're doing, but, but not stopping there. It means providing them with the comfort of the one Jesus called the comforter. He called him the counselor, the helper. It's the Holy Spirit. It means not just listening and saying, man, that's too bad. I'm sorry things are so tough right now. Offer to pray with them. 
Offer to pray for them. Offer them encouragement from the word of God. It's just one more reason to store up God's word in your heart because if it's in there, then God can bring it out of you to minister and comfort others. But you gotta have it stored in there. Otherwise, you get in that moment and, and you know someone needs an encouragement from the word of God and you're like, well, it's, it's like the word of God says, you know, um, Tough times don't last, but tough people do, you know? Praise, praise God for that. It's not in the Bible, by the way. You're like, that's a good verse. It's not in the Bible, okay? It's gotta be stored up in you if it's going to come out of you. Have you ever had like a brother or a sister in the faith just text you the right verse or the right set of verses at just the right time and it just ministers to you? It's a blessing, it's an encouragement, it's comfort to the faint-hearted. That's what this is all about. And remember, at this point in history, persecution is hitting the Thessalonian church hard. People have started being killed for their faith in Jesus. People are losing their homes. They're losing their jobs. And so the kind of discouragement that we're talking about needed more than the comfort of, oh, sorry you're having a rough time. Sorry, you know, about your spouse dying. Um, sorry about you losing your home. This needed to be the comfort of being ministered to, being prayed with. They needed an encouragement from the word of God. They needed to be touched by a prophetic word or, or some other gift of the spirit. So write this down. The greatest comfort that we can offer another believer is the comforter himself, the Holy Spirit. We're talking about things like prayer, the word, the gifts of the spirit. Getting into that person's life, listening to them, but then saying, hey, hey, how can I pray for you right now? Or can I share something with you that the Lord's putting on my heart to share with you? Really seeking to minister to them. Then Paul says we're to uphold the weak. And the idea isn't just helping the weak to stand. The idea when I looked up the meaning of the word is it's also literally holding on to them. So you're helping them to stand, but you're also holding on to them. And if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, then you've experienced a season where, where you were just weak. And if you're honest, you weren't holding on to the Lord at all, but he was holding on to you. If you've been married for a while and you have a good marriage, then you know that there's been seasons in both directions where one spouse was just exhausted, weakened, not, not bringing a whole lot to the table. And the other spouse really carried them through that season and that works both ways uh, in a marriage that's the idea here but but within the church and so practically I think that this can be as simple as sending a text to someone you haven't seen at church for a couple of weeks really asking them how they're doing not being like hey how you're doing but actually being like hey haven't seen you around for a while are you doing okay it can mean committing to pray for those in the church that you know are going through something difficult right now not just the prayer of you see them and you're like, oh, uh, let me pray for them right now so that I can walk right up to them and say, I've been praying for you. When? Like, like, like five seconds ago. But technically, I've still been praying for you, actually praying for them. It means making it difficult for those people in those times to just slip through the cracks and fall away from church. It means asking how people are doing even when you know the answer is not going to be fun. And doing whatever else the Lord leads you to do, but holding on to people that you know are in a weakened state. And as I was thinking about this whole verse in particular this week, I felt like what we really need to hear as followers of Jesus is this. These commandments are for all believers. All believers. We're not allowed to pick the ones we like and discard the ones we don't. We're all called to follow 
all of these commandments. It's not like a Facebook quiz where it's like, which of Paul's commandments are you? No, all of them for all of us all the time. So take the first command. Warn those who are unruly. There's, there's no asterisk that leads to a little note on the bottom of the page that says, unless you're an introvert, or well, unless you're not a confrontational person, or unless everybody liking you is super important to you. We're all called to do it. It's not a list of gifts where some people have one gift and others have another. It's a list of how we're to behave to each other, all of us, within the church. Similarly, when Paul says we're to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak, there's no exception that says unless you're not an affectionate person. We're all called to do it. And there's so much damage that happens in churches when we reinterpret the commands of the Bible according to our own personality. You know, I love to bring clarity to situations. I love boiling things down to the bottom line. And those character traits are are useful and profitable for, for teaching the Bible. But those same character traits make me want to read Paul's instructions like this. Warn those who are unruly. Warn the faint hearted and warn the weak. That's what I naturally want to do. Oh, you're going through a tough time right now? This is what the word says you need to do. Be blessed. I don't naturally want to sit down and and, and listen well and tell someone, "I I got all the time in the world. Just tell me what's going on. I don't naturally want to pray throughout the week for people, but that's what Jesus has called me to do. So I got to aim for that. Likewise, some of you, are way more apt to read Paul's commandments like this. Comfort those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, and comfort the weak. You just wanna tell everybody all the time that Jesus loves them and everything's gonna be okay. God understands. But that's not what you're called to do. You're called to warn the unruly. When we get this wrong, it's, it's catastrophic. Just think about this with me. When the faint-hearted and the weak are warned, it crushes them. It crushes them. But when the unruly are comforted, it empowers them to keep sinning. Paul's telling us what each person needs most. He's saying the person who is unruly needs to be warned. The person who's downcast needs to be comforted. The person who's weak needs to be upheld. And if we're going to love people well, we've got to understand that God knows what people need so much better than we do. But we want to look at it and say, well, well, this person's being unruly. Well, maybe they're being unruly because they're weak. It's not what the Bible says. So write this down. Paul's commandments are for all believers, regardless of personality type. Regardless of personality type. Even if you don't want to have a tough conversation If God is bringing something to your attention, you gotta warn that person. Even if you're not a naturally affectionate person and God is illuminating to you someone who's hurting, you gotta go up to him and listen to him. Love on them, encourage them with patience. That's why I love the way Paul ends this section. Such a good word. He says, be patient with all. Be patient with all. I'm so grateful for the believers who've been patient with me throughout my life. And if you're like me, most of the time you only realize like a decade later that people were being patient with you when you look back and you were like, oh man, 
People were really, really patient with me during that time. And then you also tell yourself, of course, man, I'm so glad I've grown past that and no one has to be patient with me anymore. Give it 10 more years, you'll look back and think the same thing again in a different way. There's always godly people being patient with us and we wanna make sure that we're among the number of godly people being patient with other people as well. You know, none of us, none of us are growing in Jesus as fast as we would like to or as fast as we think we should, right? Anybody here is like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Jeff. I'm hitting it out the park. I'm flying, flying up the ladder. None of us are growing as fast as we would like to or as fast as we think we should. He says, be patient with everybody. Verse 15, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. So he says, especially among believers, revenge is not to be a thing. Believers are not to try and get even with other believers they feel have wronged them. And if you know of another believer who's doing that, what should you do? Warn them. Paul says you should warn them. Paul says this because this might be shocking to you. Even though you might be in a church where everyone is a believer, I guarantee at some point in your life, another believer is going to do something that will make you really, really, really want to take him out. It will make you really, really, really want to get him back real bad. And in that moment, it won't matter that they're a believer. You'll just be like, that just makes it worse. I am full of the righteous vengeance of the Lord and he will have his revenge. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. He says, do what's best for the whole church. Do what's best for the reputation of Jesus. Forgive. Let it go. Leave it to the Lord to take care of. I have to tell you the story. I wasn't going to do it, but I, I got to steal your story, Dad, because it was so good. We were talking about this in men's group one time. Uh, we say, like, does anybody ha- have any examples? And, um, and Rick says, I've got an example. And I've never had a situation where someone had a more perfect example of, of what we were talking about. Can I tell the story about the carpet if that's okay? So, so he's working, he used to work with his, his brothers in a, a carpet and flooring business. And uh, they got called out to do some carpeting at a church that was pastored by a man that, that uh, they used to know uh, in the ministry. And so they go there and they do the job and they, they agree upon the price and they, they've already given him the, the best deal that they can. And the time comes for, for this pastor to make payment. And uh, they get the check and it's, it's not the number that, that they agreed upon. And, and so they say, well, what's going on here? And, and none of them go to this guy's church. The pastor says to them, oh, I took your tithe off. (laughs) And and, and understandably, they'd be like, what? Excuse me? No, you you can't do that. We don't don't go to your church. We agreed upon a price. We already gave you the best deal we can. We're going to make almost nothing on this job if this is what you pay us. And he says, well, all all the other guys were fine with it. You know, and obviously they're thinking, well, you being a jerk to everyone else doesn't make it okay, you know, and they're just thinking, what, what are we going to do? And uh, they talk with their dad, and their dad um, says, listen, Bible says you cannot sue this guy. You can't take him to court. You got to just forgive and leave it to the Lord. So that's what they did, and God took care of them and blessed them. But I was literally like, that is the most perfect example of what we're talking about you could have possibly come up with. And it's so easy in that situation to see like, no, he's a, he's a just God. We should sue. 
for the kingdom. For, that's what Jesus would want us to do, right? To, to execute justice on the earth. But Paul says, listen, listen, let it go. Even if they've wronged you completely, let it go. Leave it to the Lord. Let's keep going into verse 16. And again, I just want to remind you, this is a commandment to, to all believers. This is for all believers. Would you underline this? He says, rejoice always. Underline this especially if you're a dude. Rejoice always. The fact that Jesus has rescued us from death, the fact that the gospel is called good news, is actually supposed to be reflected in us in a noticeable way. Do you remember what Jesus told the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2? He said, listen guys, your theology is on point. It is dialed in. He says, but I've got this against you. You've lost your joy. You've lost your first love. And you need to get it back. You need to get your passion back. It's what David prayed in Psalm 51.12 when he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me ask you, if you were to tell someone at your place of work or your neighbor, if you were to say, listen, do you want to know why I'm generally in an upbeat, positive mood? Would their response be, yeah, yeah, tell me. Or would they be like, what are you talking about? You're never in a generally upbeat and positive mood. No matter what else is going on in your life, God loves you, Jesus died for you, Jesus is praying for you, God is working things for your good, and Jesus is preparing a place in heaven for you. And that's actually supposed to mean something to us. On a daily basis, it should affect us and change us. In the context of the church, do we show up with that mentality? Do we show up even at church with the mentality of I'm ready to rejoice and worship? Oh, not this song. Again, especially you men, especially men, this is a command from the Lord that Paul gives to all believers. There's no asterisk connecting to the bottom of the page that says, unless you're not an expressive person, which would, you know, like eliminate like 98% of all men. But that's not in there. He says you're to rejoice over what? The fact that you're saved. When we begin worshiping together at the beginning of the service, the only pep talk that should be needed is somebody saying, hey guys, just a reminder, rejoice always. That should be all we need, all we need. That's what Paul is saying because we're supposed to be in that mindset all the time. Just a Bible trivia side note, this is actually the shortest verse in the Bible. In the original Greek, it's even shorter than Jesus wept. Rejoice always. I like that. That's good. Then Paul says we should pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? I, I believe it refers to an ongoing conversation with the Lord throughout the day. So write this down and we'll talk about it. To pray without ceasing is to have an ongoing conversation with the Lord throughout the day, an ongoing conversation. You know, we all need that time, ideally around the beginning of our day, even as you're driving into work where we connect with the Lord through prayer. That's good, but our relationship with the Lord is not meant to take place only between 6 a.m. and 6.15 a.m. in the morning, and then we head off and ignore Jesus for the rest of the day. The Lord wants to be involved in our lives, and so that means that he wants us to talk to him throughout the day in those moments when an emotion flares up, when we're heading into a meeting with someone or leaving a meeting with someone, when we're struggling with a task, when there's something to be thankful for or something or someone who needs to be prayed for. The idea is that we talk to the Lord throughout the day. That's praying without ceasing and we're all called to do it. And you see this sometimes in people who hear even 
tragic, a tragic bit of news or something sad or difficult, and their first response is, oh, oh, Jesus. And you realize that when the person says that, it's because that's now their first response. It's their first response is they're, they're literally thinking, God, please be gracious and merciful to the people affected by this. That's part of this ongoing conversation that you just go to Jesus again and again to process things, to react to things. You go to the Lord. We should have been praying as we were on our way to this service. At least for just 30 seconds. We should have been doing it as I was getting ready to preach. We should be doing it when I'm praying at the end of the message. And let me also say this. The more your first reaction becomes prayer, the less stupid and impulsive stuff you'll find yourself doing in life. That's a great piece of advice. If, if you can begin to train yourself to take those couple of seconds to say, Lord, help me to respond wisely right now, you'll be amazed at the difference it makes. Amazed, amazed. There's a lot of times where all the Lord tells me is like, don't say anything. Like, just shut up. Just don't say anything. And it's like, okay, okay, Lord. And then usually the person says something that changes my perception of the entire situation. And I'm like, and I saved Jesus. Thank you for the heads up. I appreciate that. Stop me making a total idiot of myself again. Verse 18, keep underlining here. He says, in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. And I believe that this commandment is linked to Paul's command to rejoice always. And it's given in contrast to the sin of murmuring, which is basically the sin of complaining most aptly demonstrated by the Israelites in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land. They were murmuring, complaining all the time. We're not meant to be a people who are always complaining. We're meant to be a people who are marked by our gratitude and thankfulness. Being grateful makes you more aware of God's goodness because every time you say thank you to God for something he did, you remind yourself of what he did. You make yourself aware of it. And the more aware you are of God's goodness in your life, the more blessed you feel. And when you go around life feeling blessed all the time, you become a joy to be around for other people. So make sure that you're saying thank you to the Lord all the time for things big, for things small. Develop that attitude of gratitude within yourself. Rejoicing and giving thanks are, are not things we're only supposed to do when we feel like it. Please notice that he says that. He says, do it all the time. Do it all the time. He says, don't wait till you're feeling grateful before you start giving thanks. Don't wait till you're feeling joyful before you start rejoicing in the Lord. Do it always. So get this, in order to live the Christian life effectively, you got to understand that the battle between your feelings and your actions, those moments when you say, listen, I don't want to, Jeff, I don't want to sing to the Lord right now because I don't feel that way. And, and we even come up with justifications like this. Well, Jeff, listen, I don't, I don't want to lift my hands in worship because I don't, I don't want to be uh, unauthentic. I don't want to be a fraud in worship. So I'm miserable, so I'm just going to be real and uh, look miserable in worship. Here's what you got to understand. You cannot wait till you're feeling full of joy to rejoice. You can't wait until you're feeling grateful to begin giving thanks. It is the action that stirs up the emotion. Just as in marriage, can you imagine what sort of marriage you'd have? And some people have these marriages where it's like, well, why aren't you being nice to me today? I don't really like you today. I'm just not feeling it today. You know, what do you want to be a fraud? You want to be a fake, just pretend that I love you? You know, like that, that's no way to have a marriage. We understand that if you want to have a good marriage, you do the actions even when the feelings aren't there 
And you trust that as you do that, the feelings begin to follow the actions. So you gotta understand that the battle between your feelings and your actions is literally the battle between your flesh and your spirit. It's the same battle. The battle between your feelings and your actions is the battle between your flesh and the spirit. You cannot live your life being led by your feelings and by the Holy Spirit. You're only ever being led by one of those two things. You're only ever in any given moment being led by your feelings, by your flesh, or by the Holy Spirit in you. Only one of those at any given moment in time. That's why Paul says rejoice, give thanks always. What he's saying is choose to be led by the Spirit, not by your feelings, not by your emotions, not by your flesh. Be led by the Spirit. How important is it to rejoice always and give thanks in everything? Paul says, he plays the ultimate card here at the end, underline it, for here's his card. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul, is this just your opinion talking? I mean, maybe you just want an enthusiastic church environment to preach in. No, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He says, Church, this is what God wants you to do. And, and I don't have as a preacher any greater motivation to offer you than that. Like I don't have a more persuasive case to present to you than God wants you to do this, God said so. Jeff, what's God's will for my life? I can tell you three things right now. Rejoice, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. That's the will of God for your life. What else though specifically? I'd say start with those. Do those three things. Jeff, I don't know what career I want to do, what my future is going to hold. Listen, start with what you do know. If you're a parent who have kids, then you've probably told them this before. We tell them all the time because our, our kids will always like open the dishwasher and it's like eyes immediately go to the one thing they can't do. You know, well, I don't know where to put this one bowl. Okay, well, do everything that you know how to do first, then come talk to me about what you can't do. Go and go into the room, clean up your room. It's like, I, I don't know where this one thing goes. Okay, well, put it down and put away the other 99% of stuff that you know where it goes and then come find me afterwards. So even when it comes to the will of God for your life, well, Jeff, what am I supposed to do with my future? Start with the things you know God wants you to do. Rejoice. Pray without ceasing in everything give thanks. Build those things into your life and then see what the Lord begins to reveal to you. See what he begins to reveal to you and I believe he'll guide you in those other things. Now many people will bundle the next verse, verse 19, with the two verses after it, verses 20 and 21. But I think there's a good case to be made that it's really meant to be bundled with the three verses that come before it, verses 16, 17, and 18. Verse 19 simply reads, do not quench the spirit. Would you underline that? Do not quench the spirit. The idea being that, that if we quench, if we stifle the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we do that by refusing to rejoice, refusing to pray, refusing to give thanks. Paul says when you do that, you quench the spirit. The picture is, is like a candle like being snuffed out. You stifle the work of God in your life when you say, Jeff, I'm not going to rejoice. It's not who I am. I'm really not into praying without ceasing, and I, and I really don't want to give thanks. I don't feel like I have anything to give thanks for. He says you're quenching the spirit in your life. And so I just want to say this about that. If you feel disconnected from God in your life right now, I'm not even saying like you're walking in sin or backsliding horribly. I'm not saying that. You just don't feel connected to Jesus. I believe that what's implied here is that if you focus on these three things, rejoicing, having a daily conversation with God and beginning to give thanks in everything, 
you're going to start to feel connected with the Lord again. You're going to reestablish that connection. So would you write this down? We stifle our relationship with the Lord when we refuse to rejoice, talk with him, and give thanks. We stifle our relationship with the Lord. Then he goes on in verse 20 and he says, do not despise prophecies. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, guys, be careful not to dismiss the gifts of the Spirit. Things like prophecy. Be careful that you don't take the attitude of, you know, this is a little weird, so, so let's just pretend it doesn't exist. He says, God still moves. God still speaks. When someone comes up to you and says, I believe the Lord gave me something to say to you. Listen to him. Listen to him. Paul says sometimes God moves in unexpected ways. If he gives you a word for somebody, go, go share it. This in verse 19, so this verse, do not despise prophecies, and verse 19, do not quench the spirit, are our favorite verses of, of many people in churches and movements who hold to an unbiblical view of the gifts of the Spirit. I'm, I don't know if you've encountered them. Um, they're generally very unbiblical, but usually a lot of fun. Uh, I'm talking about Pentecostal theology that believes the Holy Spirit does things like make people roll around on the ground and scream involuntarily. I grew up in a church like this. I, I always share, you did not grow up in a church like this. You might think you did, but, but not a for real Pentecostal church. If you've never seen your pastor's wife stage dive into the arms of the elders, then you didn't grow up in a real Pentecostal church. I've seen it, right? I've seen that happen, okay? And so many times in these sort of churches, people can, can do anything, and they just say, it's the Holy Spirit. And if anyone objects, they say, listen, listen, the Bible says, do not quench the Spirit. The problem is those same folks never share or seem to read the very next verse in which Paul says in verse 21, underline it, test all things, hold fast what is good. Paul says we're to test all things using what standard? The, the word of God. Well, I can't help it. I have to shout out a prophecy in tongues in the middle of the service. It's involuntary. It's the Holy Spirit taking me over. Ah! Well, well in 1 Corinthians 14, 32, the Apostle Paul says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, he says even when God is speaking through a person, that person has control over themselves. It's not like they're like, well, and they can't control their mouths at all. They still have control. So in other words, that behavior, the person who says, oh, the Holy Spirit just took me over. I had no control over myself, doesn't pass the test of Scripture. Therefore, it's not of the Lord. It's not good. But someone comes to the pastor and asks to share a word, that's doing things decently and in order, as the Bible says. They share a word, maybe say in tongues, so the Bible says an interpretation has to be brought forth for that. Someone interprets, the church is encouraged, like Paul instructed, praise God, passes the test of scripture. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test all things Hold fast what is good. It's also a great verse for dealing with any situation. You might encounter with someone in your life who says to you, well, I just feel like this, this is what the Lord wants me to do. I don't know if you've ever had someone you care about as a believer say this. I've had people say when I've said, well, hey, you know, you, you shouldn't be living with your boyfriend. You, get, you guys aren't married. You shouldn't be living together. And they say, well, I just feel like the, the Lord's made a special exemption for me. I've had somebody tell me that. Or somebody says, I just feel like God is saying this is okay for me to do. 
And I meet a lot of believers who respond to those sort of statements by saying, well, I mean, who can say? Who can say? Who who am I to judge? Who am I to know what the Lord has told them? But Paul says, test all things. Hold fast what is good. He says, check it against the word. If God's word contradicts what they're saying, then whoever told them that, it wasn't the Lord. It wasn't the Lord. So write this down. He says, we are to test all things all things, I'm including sermons, my sermons, books, blog posts, church services, philosophies, anything that someone says is a word from the Lord, we're to test all things using the word of God. Using the word of God. Verse 22, it says, abstain from every form of evil. And I gotta tell you, the King James Version is actually much closer to the real meaning. The real meaning is abstain from all appearance of evil. Or your Bible might say, avoid even the appearance of evil. That's the idea. Even if it's not bad, but it looks bad, stay away from it. Well, why? Because the reputation of Jesus and his church matter. Remember that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, you are not your own. Maybe you really are having a late night one-on-one Bible study with your boyfriend or girlfriend in your car with nobody else around, but it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. So stay away from that sort of thing. Here's the big idea. Don't do things that invite misperceptions. Don't do things that invite misperceptions. The mature believer, Paul would say, understands this understands that, no, I'm not actually doing anything wrong, but I don't want to make somebody think that I am. I don't want to bring any type of embarrassment on the church or on the name of Jesus. The immature believer says, well, I'm not doing anything wrong, so only God can judge me. The mature believer cares about the reputation of Jesus and the church. Verse 23, he goes on and he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless at or or more accurately until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul isn't saying may you be perfect and sinless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole idea is may your whole spirit, soul and body be consecrated. May they be set apart. May you live set apart for the Lord until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying there. And I can't resist while we're here pointing out that Paul tells us that we are triune being. We are made up of three parts, a spirit, a soul, and a body. Let me, let me just explain the difference between each very quickly. The, the spirit is the word pneuma in the Greek. It's the word ruach in the Hebrew. It's the part of us best described is our God consciousness. It's the part of us that connects us to the spiritual world. The soul is the home of our emotions, our desires, our affections, and our self-will. It's best described as our self-consciousness. It's the part of us that is aware of ourselves, and the body is just that. It's the body. It's our connection to the physical world around us, how we interact with the world around us. It's our world consciousness, so to speak. It's our senses. And without going off into a whole nother sermon, I just want to make you aware of one thing regarding our triune nature. Both the spirit and the soul talk to us. Here's what I mean. We hear both the spirit and the soul in our minds. They are the parts of us that feed our internal monologue. The problem is that on our own, we can't generally tell the difference 
between our spirit and our soul. And what I mean by that is that on our own, we generally can't tell the difference whether it's our spirit speaking to us or our soul, our emotions speaking to us. I had a pastor who brilliantly pointed out that this phenomenon manifests itself even in the church. When, when people don't know the difference between their emotions, their soul, and the Holy Spirit, they equate every emotional experience in the church with the Holy Spirit. They believe any type of emotional experience they have in the church is a Holy Spirit experience. That's why you can go to some churches and the pastor just berates the congregation. You suck. You are scum of the earth. You're awful people. It's a miracle Jesus even loves you. You're all awful. And pastor does this for like an hour. And then people come out and they're like, man, did you feel that? Man, the Lord was just like heavy. The Lord was heavy in there today. That's not what happened. Pastor just made you feel like crap about yourself. He just stirred up a whole bunch of emotions and people go, well, I had an emotional reaction, so, so it must be the Lord. I just must be being convicted right now. That's not what's going on. We see this as well where, where you can go to a great worship conference and environment and, and just be moved to tears in a worship environment. And you go, man, that, that was just the Lord. But, but here's the problem. You go see a band that doesn't love Jesus at all, that has their lights dialed in, the mix is just right, the chord progression is just right, you'll cry there too. You'll cry there too. Because generally on our own, we can't tell the difference between the voice of the spirit and the voice of the soul as we hear it in our minds. But in light of that, now check out what Hebrews 4.12 tells us. It's on your outlines. This is why it's such a big deal. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So get this, only the word of God, let me say it again, only the word of God can divide between soul and spirit. Only the word of God allows us to distinguish the difference between the voice of our flesh and the voice of the spirit, the voice of the soul and the voice of the spirit. As we read the word of God, we learn about the reality of spiritual matters. We learn about what truth is. We learn what the voice of God sounds like. And as we do those things, we're able to differentiate between the voice of God and his spirit and the voice of everything else. Would you write this down? The word of God allows us to distinguish the difference between soul and spirit. The difference between soul and spirit. And that's the problem. Even in some of these churches that have a theology that's so off is they can't tell the difference because they don't know the word of God. They're generally not churches where the word of God is the priority. And so what happens is all these things happen and feelings and emotions get confused with the Holy Spirit. This feels right to me. You hear that sometimes. This feels right. Well, what does the Bible say? The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. That's what the Bible says about trusting your heart. And the great limitation of psychology is that psychology cannot deal with anything deeper than the soul. Can't deal with anything deeper than the soul. It can deal with the symptoms of spiritual issues, which is usually guilt and shame, 
But psychology cannot solve the problem. It cannot solve the problem which is spiritual and manifests at the soul level. The problem is that sin has separated us from God. And in most psychological cases, there's an issue that goes down to the spiritual level, but psychology can't get there to deal with it. The spirit is supposed to be on top. The spirit is supposed to rule the soul, and then the soul should be ruling the body. But we, we get that upside down most of the time, which is why most of the time we're pretty messed up. We, we have our soul trying to feed the appetites of the body. We have the flesh on top. We let our emotions drive us to give the flesh whatever it wants, and then our spirit just gets dragged along for the ride. Notice now how Paul begins verse 23. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then notice in verse 24, how are you going to be sanctified completely? I love it. Underline verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He says, Jesus who called you will be faithful to sanctify you completely. One way or another, at the rapture, we'll be sanctified completely. We'll receive new bodies and that good work that he began in us will be complete. The process will be finished. And what Paul says in verse 23 is he says, in between the two moments of God calling you, beginning the work of sanctification and the moment when he finishes that work, when you're united with him in his presence, in between those two moments, May you live your life with your whole spirit, soul, and body set apart for the Lord. We do our best to live set apart for the Lord, but our hope is in the fact that the Lord is actually the one who sanctifies us. We don't do it ourselves. He's the one who saves us at the beginning. He's the one who meets us at the end, but he's also the one doing all the work in us in between. And the good news is he's faithful. He promises to finish what he started. Then Paul says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. That was the custom at the time. Paul's just saying, be friendly to each other. This is not meant to be a theme verse for some crazy singles ministry, although I'm sure someone's tried that. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Done. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. That's Paul's trademark, his signature, so to speak. And just a side note, it's interesting that that trademark shows up at the end of the book of Hebrews, which is why I personally suspect he was the author of it. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything. Those are commandments for all of us, whether those behaviors come naturally to us or not. And here's a hint, they don't. They don't come naturally to any of us. And none of us would be okay with a believer saying, listen, Jeff, I know the Bible says that we're we're to live as servants, but that's, that's not really my gift. That's not really my thing. Uh, also, the faith thing when it comes to trusting God, that's just not my thing. So nah, not going to do it. Um, forgiving people, that one too. Just, just not, not, it's not me. It's not me. We would all say that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. This stuff is just part of following Jesus. And what Paul is saying that the same is true when it comes to rejoicing praying without ceasing and giving thanks. He says we're to do them not because we feel like it, but because it's the will of God for us. It's not about us. It's not about what pleases us. It's about what pleases and blesses the Lord. I'm just not into the kind of songs that we sing at church. That's okay, they're not for you. They're for the Lord. We're not worshiping you, we're worshiping Jesus. These three things, these three practices, these three habits 
will keep you connected to Jesus. But I also believe for the overwhelming majority of believers, these three things are the key to living your life to, in, in the state of what the, the Bible calls victory. Living your life in victory as a believer. If you feel like you're downcast, you're discouraged, you're apathetic in your faith, I would just venture that for 99.99% of us, when we're in that place, we're not doing these three things. Not, not even like we're not doing them well, but we're, we're doing them almost not at all. And there's a connection between our failure to rejoice, our failure to give thanks, our failure to connect with the Lord in prayer, and the fact that we don't feel connected to them. If that's you and, and you want to walk in victory and, and feel connected to the Lord, just start that practice, even in this coming time of worship we're going to have. It's a great chance to, to take communion and just give thanks to the Lord. There'll be communion available in the back. To rejoice over what, he, what he's done for you. To just tell him thank you. Begin to just list in your mind as you pray to him all the things he's done for you and just begin to reestablish that connection with him. So with that, would you bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the wisdom of your word. Thank you that, that you lay out for us how we can be connected to you, how we can enjoy an intimate relationship with you. And so, Father, we just pray right now for, for all of us together collectively that, Lord, if there's been any joy lost, that, that first love that you spoke about to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, that, that you would do the same thing for us that David prayed for, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that outside of anything and everything else going on in our lives, we would find joy in the fact that we belong to you and that you've saved us. Father, help us to stay connected to you throughout the day. And then, Lord, even now, help us to just give thanks in everything. To allow your spirit to make us aware of, of all that you've done for us, all that we have to be thankful for, so that we can go through life feeling blessed because we are blessed, that, that we can have the spirit ruling the soul, that we would feel blessed because the spiritual reality is that we are blessed that we would then live in our bodies as blessed people, full of gratitude and full of your joy. Father, just restore joy to anyone among us who needs it. Help us to uphold and to comfort those of us who are going through a difficult time who need encouragement, Lord. Open our eyes to see those among us who need ministry. And we just ask that you would use us to bless and encourage them. And then, Lord, help us to have equal love for, for those who need to be warned. For those who are on a, a path that's going to lead to things that um, aren't going to be good. Would you help us to love them enough to have the difficult conversations? Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. 
If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.